Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is God's word to us this evening. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I imagine that if you did some kind of statistical calculation whenever you turn on the news these days, and and really for the totality of having 24-hour news networks, you would find that the majority... A a great percentage of what is on there is stories of hostility and division and enmity and discord and strife. The majority of the, the great problems in the world are problems that center on division and schism, war-torn nations fighting with each other, um, individuals fighting with each other, uh, different races fighting with each other, different ethnicities, different people groups, the citizens fighting with the police. There is division in almost everything that we see the news cover in this world. And that's because we live in a world that has fallen, a world that is not only fraught with sin and and misery, but a world that is fraught with division and hostility and enmity and strife and all of the consequences of Adam's sin. That is the inevitable condition of the world fallen in Adam from the very moment that our first father disobeyed God and took and ate of the tree that he was commanded not to eat of. And you see that division, don't you, in Adam and Eve, that no sooner do they, um, no sooner do our first parents disobey God, that they are at enmity with each other in that first marriage, that they are blaming each other, that they are hostile to one another, and they are at enmity with God by nature. And that is the great condition of the world in which we live. And the Apostle Paul, as you'll remember from last week, has been reminding the Ephesians of what they were before the grace of God came to them. He had given them that long list in chapter 1 of all the marvelous and magnificent things that they had in Jesus. He had told them of those seven spiritual blessings that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that God has broken open the windows of heaven in Jesus and he has done everything to pour out his blessing on his people. 
And Paul then, remember, he goes on to pray for them and pray that their eyes would be open to see the greatness of those blessings. And then Paul backs up, as we saw last week, and he begins to remind them of what they were when that grace came to them, lest any of them have any reason to boast over anything that they had done. And Paul had summed up that last great section in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, by saying that they were the restored workmanship, the artistry of God, that he had restored his image in a people that were spiritually dead, as all men are by nature. Now, what Paul had done in chapter 2 is he had taken them back to consider what is the great problem that the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ solves. What is the great, what is the great problem that this world faces. And you could very easily divide Ephesians 2 into these two parts. The one part is man's need for resurrection. We saw that last week. Man is dead in sins and trespasses. He doesn't need just a little bit of reformation. He doesn't need some rehabilitation. He doesn't need counseling. It's not just a matter of right thinking or education. It's not just a matter of fixing social ills or problems, but that man fundamentally must undergo a resurrection from the dead, a spiritual resurrection in Jesus, that man is in the worst possible condition. And we have to be reminded of that because we don't think that that's the case. We see people walking around and many of them are nice and many of them say nice things and they seem to do nice things. And some of them are polite. Many of them are not, but some are polite and some are very courteous and some are dignified and some have good etiquette. And we allow ourselves to be deceived that man is not as bad as the Bible actually says he is, and so the Apostle Paul has told us man needs a resurrection. But there is a further thing that man needs that the grace of God has to fix, and Paul is going to say that the second great thing, the consequence of Adam's sin, and what the gospel of what our Lord Jesus does on the cross and in his resurrection can only fix is that man needs reconciliation. And so from Ephesians 2, 11 down to verse 22, the apostle is trying to, to help us understand that our spiritual biography is one of enmity and hostility and alienation. He brings out this catalog of verbiage in order to explain how terribly divided we are first from God in the vertical relationship we should have had with God by nature and then with one another. And how the gospel comes to bear and the gospel fixes the relationships of men. You know, when I was a boy, I, I, I went through a phase of listening to the Beatles. And for good or ill, I, I loved that one song. All we are saying is give peace a chance. And you hear the voices today crying out for peace. No more war. And if we just do this, and if we just do that, if we just negotiate, if we just go over and have conversations, if we, if, we just, if we just form factions and coalitions and alliances, if we just if we just get together, we can make this world a world of peace. If we just join forces and try hard enough, and the Apostle Paul is facing the same problems that we face today and that men will face until Jesus comes again, because the Lord Jesus said, don't be surprised. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be hostility. There will be enmity. There will be strife. And in this world fallen on this side of glory, no amount of human effort or intellect or education 
or coalitions or any other thing that man may bring to the table can ever bring the peace that only Jesus can bring through his blood. I'll never forget when my dear friend Stephen Birch preached here. He preached on that verse out of Ecclesiastes, wisdom is better than weapons of war. And as he unpacked that verse, his point was that Jesus is the wisdom of God and that what the wisdom of God can do through the preaching of the gospel and changing the lives and the hearts of people is vastly better than all the military strategy of the world in efforts to bring peace to this fallen and hostile world. Well, as we look at this tonight, we really see three stages. What the apostle does is gives us this spiritual biography of what we were as men and women set in hostility to one another and to the world around us and to God and without Christ and without hope and without God in the world. And he gives us three stages. He tells us first of the alienation and the hostility. Secondly, he tells us of the reconciliation and peace that is wrought for us in Jesus. And then finally, he tells us about the habitation and the restoration of all things in Christ. Notice there as he continues to unpack what he has begun in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now in verse 11 he says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now very interesting that Paul, between Ephesians 1.1 and Ephesians 4.11, gives us two, two commands, two imperatives. Everything else is an indicative. You know, I say this often to you. Christians in the megachurches just want the practical, tell me 10 steps to get this done. Christians in the pietistic reform camp just want applications on what you can do more and more and more and more personal application. Paul, got to get this right. Paul would insist, as he does in every letter that he writes, that you must have weighty enough indicatives about Jesus. And very interesting to me that the first two applicatory words from the Apostle Paul to us in this letter are found first in Ephesians 2.11 when he says, remember, and then again in Ephesians 3.13 when he says, don't lose heart. Remember and don't lose heart. I love that. Before you go getting zealous to have your little perfectly ordered applicatory Christian life, don't miss the steps. Remember and don't lose heart because so much of the Christian life is built on the foundation of remembering, and by that we mean understanding what God has done in Christ and understanding exactly who we were and the condition we were in. And it is built on not losing heart when things get difficult and the trials and the challenges come. Remember and do not lose heart. Well, as Paul begins to remind them of that alienation, we again have to understand that he's not saying, hey, you've forgotten. He's not saying your big problem is that you've forgotten, but that you need to come to understand. You need to understand the the position that you're in. You know, I, I really do think one of the great detriments to the church making greater advance in this fallen world is that Christians do not adequately understand the condition that they were in by nature. I think it is one of the most detrimental things to the growth of the church. Oftentimes when 
the true condition of men is being talked about, Christians will say, well, don't be so pessimistic. Listen, my friend, if that is what you think, the Bible is vastly more pessimistic than you, and you need to get a heavy dose of reality and biblical pessimism about the nature of the world that you live in. And no amount of political uh, endeavors can clean up the natural condition of man. I fear that too many of us, and I say this to you often, think that if we get the right candidate and America can hold on to its freedoms and we can avoid the trials and the difficulties, that's where our hope lies. And Paul would say, remember, remember that when you were without Christ as Gentiles, these were Ephesians who had never known God in Christ. They are not Jews who had covenant promises. They didn't have the nurture of the covenant people in the Old Testament. They didn't have the promise of the coming Redeemer coming through their people group that God had formed personally for himself and where God had dwelt and given ordinances and worship principles. These were idolatrous Gentiles. These were people who were far off from God. They were alienated from God. They were away from the covenant promises. They were without hope. They didn't even know they were without hope. They didn't know of the grace of God in the gospel. They had not so much as heard of a redeemer. Paul will make every point in this section to say that it was necessary that the gospel come to the Ephesians who were under the the darkness of the witchcraft and the temple worship of Diana, just like the world in which we live. And as Paul begins to unpack what they were when he says that they were without God, he's not saying they were atheists. They had plenty of gods. They worshiped plenty of gods. But in their idolatrous worship of those things that are not God, they were without the true God. They did not know the true God. And by necessity, they had to live at enmity with each other and with the Jewish nations around them. Now, to understand this, the greatest modern-day illustration that we have close to home is the awful segregation that this country experienced. And it's awful. And if you don't think it's awful, shame on you. Shame on you because it is a picture of the division between Jew and Gentile. I hear Christians trying to justify segregation, and that is wicked. And I will argue with you about that. That was wicked to set up division and to enforce division and to legislate division. And I didn't have to live in the 60s to know that because the Bible says that it's awful. And we need to come to terms with the fact that what Paul says in this paragraph is that when God is not in the picture, there is segregation, and there is division, and there is hostility, and there is enmity, and there is fighting, and that that is a necessary consequence of being without God, and that by implication, if we had God in our lives, if we were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, which Paul's going to talk about, what that brings about, the fruit of that is harmony and reconciliation with those around us that we were once at enmity with. And so notice what Paul says. Paul says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And then notice what he says. He speaks of the two great people group that were divided and segregated, the Jews and the Gentiles. Notice verse 14, speaking about Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made both one, the Jew and the Gentile, in him, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus 
came into the world to deal with sinful division among men. Now, I think the saddest, the saddest thought when I think about this passage and the glorious triumph of Jesus' death and the reconciliation it should bring about with different people groups, all who trust him, is that we remain segregated and there remains to be division in the church. One of the sad stories I may have mentioned to you in the past is that of Ralph Erskine, uh, after whom Erskine Seminary was founded. And uh, Ralph Erskine, one of the founders of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, one of the great theologians in Reform, Reformation Church history, he and his brother uh, wrote many great works and hymns and poems. Uh, their sermons are beloved, but Ralph Erskine was in a church, the Church of Scotland, that was divided. It was divided over several controversies. One was theological, another was a church-state relation issue. And one of the sad stories in church history is about how Ralph Erskine had a falling out with his son-in-law, John Erskine, his son, John Erskine, and how they took different sides over whether officials, public officials in Scotland, needed to adhere to Christianity in order to be public officials. And Ralph Erskine said no, and John Erskine sided with those who said yes and sided with those who excommunicated Ralph Erskine because of that. They were called the Burgers and the Anti-Burgers. And they excommunicated Ralph Erskine, and Erskine writes in his diary of the pain that he felt as he was standing before that church council, and as the division was going down and the sentence was about to be passed, that he saw his son sitting on the other side and thought that his son would be the one who would pronounce excommunication against him for believing that city officials did not need to adhere to the Christian religion in order to be officials. Now that is heartbreaking. Erskine went to his deathbed unreconciled with his son, called for him on his deathbed, and John Erskine would not come and be reconciled to his father. And you know what? It happens in the church all the time. That enmity and that hostility happens in marriages, happens between parents and children, happens between church members over the stupidest stuff. Yes, I said stupid. Stupid stuff. Ridiculous stuff, preferences, distinctives. I want this. I want that. I don't like this. I want this. I don't know why we can't do this. And factions form and division comes. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that that happens in churches. And it happens constantly in churches because we have not yet adequately come to realize what is the fruit of not being reconciled to God, being fallen in Adam, and living in this fallen, alienated, hostile world of which we are a part by nature. But Paul goes on and he gives us the good news. He gives us the reconciliation and the peace in what God has done for us in Christ. And notice the the epicenter of this passage is really Paul telling us everything that Jesus did to bring about the peace and the reconciliation both between God and men and between man and man. And notice what he says is after defining with all that verbiage the hopelessness and the godlessness and the alienation and, and being away from the covenant people and being hostile toward one another and that division between different people groups and different uh, religious groups in this fallen world, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, but now, it's another but now. We saw one last week. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And now Paul gives us another great 
but God. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, the first thing to remember, if we want to appreciate and experientially realize what this reconciliation is in our life and see the fruit of it demonstrated in our relationships, is that while we were once off, now we have been brought near. Once we were far away from God, we were in the far country like the prodigal son who went into the far country and gladly ate the food that they fed the pigs. And while we were there, cut off from God, maybe even in our dignity, maybe even in our, in our socioeconomic status and our clean exteriors, we were in the far country because our hearts were not reconciled to God. Now in Christ, notice this, you who once were far off have been brought near. You didn't bring yourself near. He went and got you. I love the way the hymn writer says it. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. I realized when I was converted, my heart would just want to weep over the beauty of that, that Jesus had sought me when I was wandering and rebellious, and he put his blood down to bring me home. He shed his blood to bring me near. He shed his blood to bring the rebellious son into the house of the glorious son and to clothe me as the father clothed the prodigal with the best garments and to put a ring on his finger and to kill the fatted calf and to throw a feast and to rejoice and to call all of his people to say, come and rejoice, come. My son was lost and he's found again. He was dead and he's alive again. And that is the picture of what Jesus has accomplished by the shedding of his blood. And it's when we forget that, that we end up allowing the sinfulness of our hearts to go back to a life of division and hostility and not to realize all that God has done in Christ. You know, Jesus is the heavenly man. That's the way the Apostle Paul speaks of him, the Lord from heaven. And I think we can't adequately understand all that Jesus accomplished on the cross until we start to really pour over the biblical data of all that he accomplishes there. Here, Paul is just giving us one dimension. He's giving us one aspect. In fact, it was one of the seven spiritual blessings of chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So that Jesus comes from heaven where he, he ruled and reigned at the center of of the universe and reality with his father and his spirit. And he came and he hung on the cross so that he might reconcile a world that was divided, that even heaven itself, the angels, are, are separated from fallen mankind. There's this great thought that this old Scottish Presbyterian John Eady says in his commentary on Colossians 1, where he's talking about the reconciliation that Christ accomplishes through his death on the cross. And he says, and that Jesus died on the cross so that Gabriel and Adam could embrace each other in glory. I love that thought. So that Gabriel and Adam, you know, the angels long to look into the things of redemption. They stand tiptoe like a child on Christmas morning looking out to see if it snowed. 
And they're peering into what Christ has done for his people. And they're waiting for that reconciliation of all things. And here what Paul is doing is he's saying, here is one major part of that reconciliation. Jesus shed his blood to bring us back to God, to bring us near, who were far away, who were aliens, who had no right, no claim to the inheritance, no right to redemption. You had no right to redemption. It is not a divine right. It is a divine grace. It is a divine mercy. It is an unmerited, undeserved, large, mercy-filled, rich-in-mercy God action toward us in Jesus. And it's through the shedding of the blood we've been brought near. Notice what Paul says. I love this. He doesn't say, his blood is our peace, though it is. He says, he himself is our peace. Our peace is a person. Jesus is the peace of God. He is the peace between God and our sinful souls. I have often read that quote by Bunyan, where John Bunyan in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners is wrestling with assurance issues. And I think at this point, maybe he was converted. And he, he, he says, well, I was out that one day in the field musing over the wickedness and blasphemy on my heart and the enmity that was in me to God. That verse came to mind. He has made peace through the blood of his cross, and it made me to see both again and again and again that day that God and my soul were friends through that blood, could embrace, God and my sinful soul were now friends through that blood and could embrace and kiss each other through that blood. And I love what he says. He says, that was a good day. I shall hope I shall not forget it. That was a good day. (laughs) God has made peace in his son who is peace for us. There is only peace in Jesus, and Jesus wants us to experience that peace. He wants us to know peace in our relationships. He wants us to be people that are quick to repent to each other. That blood purchased your repentance and my repentance. That blood should make you a person that goes to someone and says, will you please forgive me for this? It should fuel you being an agent of peace in every relationship that you have. When people don't go to people and say, will you forgive me? They have forgotten this. When people don't go to the Lord and say, will you forgive me? They have forgotten this. This is what fuels repentance. This is what makes you a humble, broken, sin-confessing, mercy-extending person. And Paul wants to see, he wants to show us how big this is. This reconciliation and this peace is so large. Notice this, he says, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He's drawing that imagery from the temple where the Gentiles and the Jews were segregated. Again, segregation, bad. Reconciliation, good. Why did God do that? Why did God put a division wall in the temple? Why were there ceremonial laws, ordinances that separated Jews from Gentiles by dietary law? If if God wanted reconciliation, why did he give those laws? Because God wanted men to see what they were by nature. And in a sense, and this is marvelous, in a sense, the Gentiles were greater beneficiaries of the purpose of that than the Jews through most of Paul's ministry, because the Jews thought they deserved the commonwealth. They thought that by nature they were reconciled to God. They thought they were better than the Gentiles. They were full of self-righteous pride, and the Gentiles understood we don't deserve anything. 
and we have no claim to anything. So that the purpose of God establishing those boundary markers and divisions actually benefit you and me when we understand that we had no right and no claim whatsoever and that we were put outside. Now, when were those things abolished? When, when did God change this divinely instituted segregation? When did God and how did God do that? And that's the great question Paul's dealing with. How does God deal with a division that he created for himself? And he says, by being born under it, by taking the cruel death of the cross and all the sin of his people, by being born under those ordinances and in his flesh being broken apart in judgment on the cross as the Son of God was rent apart under the judgment of God, the dividing wall was removed, the commandments and the ordinances were taken out of the way, they were nailed to the cross. Those ceremonial divisions were done. God removed them in the death of Jesus. When Jesus was ripped apart in judgment and his hands and his feet were nailed to the tree, God was taking away the dividing wall of hostility and enmity. And what those, those laws represented, the spiritual hostility and enmity, he was breaking that apart when the veil was rent in two from top to bottom. The writer of Hebrews says the veil was his flesh. They were fleshly ordinances. And so the Son of God took flesh to himself. And as he fell under the wrath of God and took the hostility on himself, as he bore the reproaches with which we had reproached God, all of those things were passing away to symbolize. And yes, in the destruction of the temple, they were fully and finally removed by God to symbolize that there is no more division, that the hostility has been dealt with. That now in Christ there is peace, not just with God, but with men. And notice that he says in verse 18, no matter who it is, he or Jew and Gentile, we both have access in the spirit to the Father. Now what Paul is really saying is that now, no matter who you are, no matter what background you have, if you know God and you've been reconciled to him through Jesus by his blood, you have the same father. And you both go to the same father. Now, if my sons come to me and I show preferential treatment to one of them over the other, that is bad parenting. If my sons come to me and they say, Daddy, you told me this. Can we do this? And one of them comes and says, Daddy, you said this. Can we do this? And I say to one of them, yeah, we'll do that. And to the other, no, we're not doing that. I am showing them that they don't have equal access to me, that I show preference to them. And what Paul is saying is that if you're reconciled to God, there is no preference. There is no distinction. There is no difference. The hostility has been removed. The reconciliation is brought about by us being brought into the Father's house and having access by the same Spirit, indwelt by the same Spirit, the Spirit is the great reconciler. The Holy Spirit is the great enmity remover, the great hostility destroyer. When you are filled with the Spirit, you know what you love? Unity. Ephesians 4. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You love unity. You don't want to be a hostility maker. You don't want to be divisive. You don't want to be schismatic. You don't want to segregate other people that love Jesus. The book of James has an enormous amount to say about this, that if, if the rich in the church discriminate against the poor in the church, they are, they are sinning against God. 
They are breaking God's law. And so Paul is setting out for us this beautiful reconciliation where God has brought us who were far off near so that now we together with those believing Israelites in Paul's day who trusted in Jesus Christ are now members together of the same household. Now that's the third thing. He tells us that there's a habitation. There's a dwelling place. Last week I said that you are like a a painting that God has restored through the spiritual resurrection that you have in Jesus. And he wants everybody to look at that magnificent work of art. In one very real sense, we are hanging in the same gallery. That's what Paul's saying now, that you were once aliens and strangers outside, but now, notice this, notice verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, the closest thing I have been in to a temple, honestly, is an art gallery. If you go to the Louvre or you go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art or you go to any of those great massive buildings, They are temple-like structures. They are magnificent. And when you stand in the foyer of those great art galleries and you see the magnificence of the building and you see the magnificence of the paintings hanging on the wall and you marvel, how in the world could they have ever built this? How in the world could men have ever built something so magnificent? And then we should stop and remember that we are a magnificent temple of different people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who had no claim on anything, who had no right to be used by God as stones being built one upon another, but that God is building out of his church this beautiful temple. Now, I'm going to say this tonight to you for you to be praying about. We are seeking to plant a church in the south side of Savannah, and it's going to be a tough work. And I imagine it's going to be a slow work. And there are at least 50-some percent African-Americans in Savannah that need to hear the things that you get to hear. And there are lots of Hispanic people in our area that need to hear the things that you get to hear. And you have no claim over those things. You have no right. And they all are just as far off by nature as we are far off by nature if they're not in Christ. Many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ already. And how glorious it would be if we commit together to seeing what Paul says Jesus accomplishes in his death on the cross in that work out of this church as we labor alongside with them. That should be what we want through the preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the word, the exaltation of what Jesus has done, the holding forth the very things you are hearing. Because when you're hearing them, when you're hearing these things, Paul tells us Jesus is preaching to you right now. The Jesus you can't see is preaching. And you may say, well, no, 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 you, Nick. No, if I'm preaching the word faithfully, Christ is preaching. And we are responding to Jesus. We are responding to a message about Jesus. And Paul says, he came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who were far off. That when the gospel is proclaimed, those who are still far off are brought near because they hear the voice of the Son of God And they come forth and they live and they're united together to form this magnificent temple, a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, that is the church. That's what the church is. 
That's what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross. When we don't have that same desire, we are stealing mediatorial glory from Jesus. When, when our vision of a church, this church, of any church, of how we view others is less than Ephesians 2, 11 through 20, then we are robbing Jesus of what is his by divine right because he shed his blood for that. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to rob Jesus of anything. I want to come alongside the Savior and be used by him and want us to be used by him and want us to experience the peace that he is for us in this church and in Savannah and around the world, that we would labor together for that. Now, I'm going to say this as I close. The quickest way for us to get there is not to strategize. It's not to spend 50 hours of conversation trying to figure out what to do. The quickest way for us to get there is to be amazed at what God has done for us through the shedding of the blood of Jesus when we were far off. That's the quickest way to get there. That is the fast track to seeing this church, the Southside Church plan, and any other church we're a part of, living with that kind of reconciliation and harmony and unity. You know, my heart breaks when I think about the Erskine story, that, that here are two ministers and two churches that claimed to preach the word of God undiluted and cared about purity, but they had taken their eyes off of the blood of Jesus. And so they lived in hostility. We don't want that. Don't let that be you. Marvel at what God has done. Remember. Paul would say to us tonight, remember. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we are beset by not fully remembering and acknowledging what we were. We acknowledge that when we bicker and fight and bite and devour each other, when we look down at others who love you, or think less of them, or don't want to be in fellowship with those who you have purchased by your blood, we are robbing you of your glory, and we are taking our eyes off of who we were and what you did for us in that condition. And so please remind us tonight. Please stir us up by way of reminder. Please send us out with great joy and zeal this week ahead to be agents of your reconciliation. We pray, our Father, that you would help us as we sing now that We would sing with hearts that are full because of what Christ has done in his death on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.